The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the consul, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're still going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her and in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The Gospel of the Lord. Those of you who were here last Sunday recall we jumped into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in particular verses 13 through 20, which I included in gray font for you this morning. You'll recall that in that section, Jesus was critiquing the way the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders who were in power in his day, the way they had interpreted God's law and intensified God's law, 
Because the way they did it was they, they meticulously sought to define the outward behaviors necessary for keeping God's Ten Commandments. In the Pharisees' case, they added a further 613 rules to the law. And as we said, this approach had led to a toxic religious culture within Jerusalem, a, a culture of pretending or performing. It also meant, though, that the Jews were failing to fulfill their vocation as stewards of God's law, to be salt and light to the world. And yet this was the dominant approach to Judaism in Jesus' day. So this life-sapping religion is part of what Jesus came to remedy. Through him, God instituted a new covenant where any of us who make Jesus the king of our lives can learn the true intent of God's law how it is meant to be not a burden to us, but a gift, a blessing. And where we can also learn how the intent of God's commands can become more of a reality fulfilled in our lives. That can happen as we come to learn not only what our sin is, that, that our sin actually begins in our hearts, but also as we learn that only the Lord, not us, is stronger than these sinful desires and temptations in our hearts. And in the long term, beyond any particular episode of temptation, it means allowing the Lord to remake our hearts, to develop in us an inner goodness from which an outer goodness can then spring. So as we move into today's gospel passage, we need to understand that this is what Jesus is up to. As we look at the way Jesus addresses anger, lust, divorce, and though we won't get to it, oaths or truthfulness, he's providing a correct interpretation of what God's law is aimed at accomplishing in our lives, which can allow us to become truly, to truly become salt and light to the world around, rather than repugnant to the world around. God can then use our lives to cause others to desire the relationship with God we have if we take this approach rather than outward moralism. Now, I've preached on this passage before. In 2017, when I did a series on Dallas Willard's interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, and of course, I spent a week on both anger and lust during my series on the seven deadly sins in 2018. However, the thing about topics like these, anger and lust dishonesty, though we won't get to it today. The thing about topics like these is, is none of us ever has all of these issues aced. So in some sense, none of us can kind of review these too often. You know, one of the things about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that while it's, it's meant to clarify and reveal things long misunderstood or hidden, one of the realities is that the, the odds of readers grasping what Jesus is trying to say are still stacked against us. And that's because we may fail to understand what was different about first century Jewish world from our own 21st century Western context. Or because it can be difficult to appreciate when Jesus is using hyperbole. That is, Jesus can make extreme statements like tear out your eye or cut off your hand that we saw today in verse 29 or 30 that are meant not to be taken literally, but are rather meant to make a different and less obvious point, which I hope I can clarify if that is necessary. 
But finally, though Jesus critiques the scribes and Pharisees for focusing solely on outward obedience, none of us are immune from that same impulse to apply what Jesus says about anger and lust and so forth in that same way. Because there's something about our sinful condition that prefers performing or pretending as opposed to going inside and opening up our hearts for Jesus to to transform us in an integrated way. It's a lot easier, at least in the short term, to pretend and perform until we just get exhausted. So while some of us, some of what I'll say you may have heard before, since many of us are not in the same place in our spiritual journeys that we may have been two and three years ago, I'm confident the Lord has something new for each of us to hear on these topics. So I'd encourage you there in the pews to ask the Lord to use my words this morning to that end. What does the Lord want to show you today? What is your heart ready to hear today? So let's begin where Jesus does. Let's begin with anger. Jesus teaches, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, because anger is often misunderstood, particularly within the church, I need to be clear here that anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. Feel free to write that down. In fact, to the contrary, I would contend that anger is a gift. As a God-given emotion, which it is, anger alerts us that there's a problem that needs to be confronted. Right? When we get angry, that's an alert system God has given us that says our boundaries have been violated. Okay? So anger can be quite helpful in that way. Necessary. But the trouble with anger is that It is a gift that can easily turn into a curse, become a curse, if we don't deal with it appropriately whenever it arises. And this understanding is consistent with the passage from Ephesians printed in your bulletin, right? In that box where Paul says, be angry and do not sin, right? He's distinguishing. Do not let the sun go down your anger, right? Deal with it responsibly so you don't give opportunity to the devil. So the thing about anger is, if it's not worked through appropriately whenever it arises, it will simply live on in our hearts, potentially forever. Time actually does nothing to abate anger, despite all the myths about it. It will live on inside of us. We may forget about it consciously, but it will be there. Right? So what do we do? Well, when anger first arises, we must then decide what to do with it. And there's a variety of of responses that may be appropriate. May include sharing with the person who maybe has provoked us to anger how their behavior has affected us, right? As opposed to stuffing it and brooding or resenting them, right? Taking responsibility for our feelings instead of of assuming they can read minds, which they can't. Second option could be surrendering our anger to Jesus. In other words, forgiving the person, right? Or confessing our anger to another and seeking wise counsel about how they suggest we might deal with it in a way that won't increase harm, right? These are three potential godly responses to deal with anger when it arises. 
So when Jesus speaks of someone being angry with their brother in verse 22, he's not suggesting that experiencing the motion of anger is sinful, right? It's when anger arises and we fail to take proper responsibility for dealing with it and choose instead to, to either carry it around silently or indulge it either aggressively or passive-aggressively, indulge it to harm others. That's where we cross over the line to sin. Okay? Jesus mentions indulging anger. One way of indulging it would be insulting one who's provoked us. And this is instructive because whenever we use, I've said this before, but whenever we use unkind or filthy language, it's a sign of unresolved anger in our hearts. Willard explains that calling someone a fool in Jesus' day, which Jesus mentions here, that would be like calling someone, forgive my French here, calling someone a stupid bastard today or an effing jerk, right? You guys have all heard these words, so let's be real. When that comes out of us, it alerts us that we have some anger to deal with, right? It's someone, I'll just confess, someone who's personally struggled in my life with with the, a mouth, right? I don't excuse it, but when it happens, I I try to have compassion toward myself and understand, oh, that's alerting me. There's something I need to go deal with, right? It's part of living in God's grace. I take responsibility if I've directed it towards somebody, but usually it's just comes out, right? Oh, there's something wrong. That's an old habit that tells me something's wrong. I'm angry about something. What is that? We say, well, I don't know if I want to explore where the anger in me is coming from. It may be really old. It may be require us to look at something really painful. Some of us have been angry for decades about something and haven't truly dealt with it. So why would I want to do that hard work, John? Well, first of all, because anger, holding on to anger, excuse me, holding on to anger is displeasing to God. In verse 23, Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, too often, Christians who uh, are looking for law all over the place have misappropriated these verses as a law against receiving receiving communion when... uh, when we detect that we have unforgiveness. Now, that may be a choice you could make, right? Jesus is absolutely encouraging us to seek reconciliation. But N.T. Wright explains Jesus is also using hyperbole here. Remember, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount out in a rural area of Galilee, perhaps a three days walk from the temple in Jerusalem. And yet he's talking to people who at least at certain points in their year, in their life, would travel to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, right, in the Jewish system, right? So he's asking them to imagine traveling all that way, buying the animal in the temple courtyard, right, making their way up to the altar, right, ready to throw it down, and and, in the presence of God, though, causing them to remember some relationship that's gone wrong, where they have some responsibility to do. So just imagine the absurdity of someone dropping the animal there in the temple courtyard and then traveling three days to make amends 
and then three days back to make their sacrifice with a clean conscience, right? That's intentionally sort of absurd, right? Nobody would ever want to do that or to have to do that. So instead, Jesus is using this hyperbole to teach people, just live your life in a way such that you don't harbor anger. So that this isn't an issue, right? Don't be in the habit of harboring anger. He's saying God cares about it that much. So, so we should be motivated to, to deal with our unresolved anger, first, because it's displeasing to God, but second, because indulging it is toxic to others. We all know this. The thing about lashing out in anger is it just creates more anger. Anger is very procreative in that way. Anger feeds on anger. Right? You lash out, then they get more angry, and back and forth, and it escalates. And yet anger is actually a tool that many people use to try to just get things done in this world. Right? You ever been across anybody like that, or been that way yourself? particularly if you're dealing with somebody who's been wounded deeply by the anger of others in their past, they will do almost anything to avoid being further traumatized. This is all subconscious, right? Somehow it's easy to kind of subconsciously sniff it out in others too, right? For some, and to use this. It makes such people vulnerable to being manipulated and easy to control with just the threat of someone getting angry with them, right? In fact, such habits and interactions are so well-worn in some family relationships, dysfunctional relationships. You can have one person in a family living, frankly, in constant fear, even if it's subconscious, constant fear and terror of a spouse or a parent blowing up at them. And therefore, their whole life becomes kind of organized around keeping that individual pacified and happy. Talk about prison. But followers of Jesus are invited instead to receive his perfect love that casts out fear. It gives us the courage to put in appropriate boundaries and to not be peacekeepers. Jesus doesn't want us to be peacekeepers. He, he invites us to be peacemakers. It's a bit harder. Well, this leads to the third reason we should work to keep anger from taking up residence in our hearts, and that's because it will lead to negative consequences in our lives, and it's toxic to our souls. Toxic. But first, the, the consequences in our lives. Jesus' illustration in verse 25 gives an example of the negative consequence it can have on our lives. He's just given one example that's relevant to that historical context, right? Saying, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the guard and you be put in prison. You'll never get out till you pay the last penalty. Penalty. It was not uncommon in Jesus' day for particularly Jewish people living under oppression to, to, to yearn for their day in court, whether that be the earthly court or the heavenly court, right? And like justice is a good thing to seek, but if it's, if it's an all-consuming thing, 
that could instead just be forgiven, maybe that's a better option. So Jesus isn't, again, this isn't a law. Jesus isn't prohibiting Christians from ever seeking justice in the court of law or something like that, which you hear, that interpretation. Instead, Jesus is just suggesting that becoming consumed with seeking out recourse for injustices that have been done to us, that may not always turn out the way we want. Right? We may get that day in court fulfilled and it actually not go the way we thought it would. Therefore, seeking forgiveness and to live at peace with others insofar as it depends on us, that's typically the wiser path. But as I mentioned, holding on to angers also doesn't just have kind of out there consequences in our life. It's also toxic to our souls. As N.T. Wright explains, when Jesus, back in verse 22, is speaking about the consequences of holding on to anger, he says it, it makes one liable to judgment. Or he says indulging anger by insulting one's brother makes them liable to the council. Right? Jesus is not speaking here exclusively at least, about arbitrary punishments that will catch up to us later on or in the afterlife. No, no, no. In fact, the Greek word for that that final consequence translated as hell of fire, the Greek word is actually Gehenna, which was actually just the name of a trash dump southwest of Jerusalem, right? Where refuse would be burning day and night. That's what they did with it, right? They burned the trash day and night. Okay. Well, Wright warns, if you're the sort of person who sneers at everybody and calls everybody names, then if you, if you get in the habit of indulging anger and contempt, then that fire inside you may eventually become all that's left of you. You may become a burning trash heap of a person. To be very blunt. Hey, Jesus is blunt. I'm going to try to be blunt. It's a big deal. That's why it's being blunt, right? To fail to deal with our anger diminishes our own humanity. It's kind of a form of self-abuse, really. And it's basically embracing having the presence in this world akin to a burning garbage dump. We've been around angry people. Burning garbage dump? The shoe fits. Jesus is offering a way out of even that hell. The boundary guys, Cloud and Townsend, explain that when somebody's become an angry person, it's usually the result of enduring years and years of constant boundary violations. They may not, again, been conscious of. So the first step out of being such an angry person is seeking help to uncover what those violations are that one's carrying around, right? That time doesn't really do anything for. And then seeking healing for those injuries, which will reduce both one's feelings of anger, but also their need for anger, right? So that's anger. What about lust? Well, like anger, it's important for me to begin by saying that that sex is a gift from God. I need to be clear about that, both for relational bonding between husband and wife and for procreation. 
right? the propagation of human life. Right? So sexual desire or attraction, none of us would be here without it. Hope I'm not breaking any news there. Your parents had that conversation with you, right? Right, so the instinct of sexual attraction or desire is not sinful, right? But similar to anger, sexual desire is a gift that comes with responsibility, right? So it's a gift from God, but we have to kind of steward that gift. And if we don't take that responsibility for it, sexual desire can easily lead, it can easily become a curse, right? But Jesus helpfully, I think, explains kind of the line, like when that happens, when sexual attraction becomes the sin of lust, you might call it. In verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the key word here is intent. You see, it is not the feeling of sexual attraction towards someone other than our spouse that is sin. It's not the sexual temptation that flashes in our brains or whatever that's sin. Rather, it is the indulgence of that temptation. What Wright calls the gaze and the lustful imagination that follow the initial impulse. That's what's toxic to us and others. Now, of course, Jesus is not suggesting that only men are susceptible to this. Women are as well. But in Jesus' day, men in particular, so why is Jesus single out men? Well, in his day, men in particular thought they'd found a loophole in God's law, actually. Right? Because it only explicitly prohibited sexual relations with a woman if she was married. All right? So you can look at the Deuteronomy 24 passage, put in your bullets, and that's That's kind of what they read and said, well, so I can't have sex with anybody who is themselves married. That leads a lot of, uh, if you're, so, and remember the Pharisees and scribes, they were all about being exact, exact about it, right? So they thought, jinga, right? We got a, a loophole, right? Right? Not just a loophole in their physical action, though, of course, but there's no telling if they thought that was permissible, right? There's no telling what they thought was permissible in the seeming privacy of their own minds and hearts. Now, while it could certainly be argued that committing physical adultery with a married person is damaging to more people than if the person's not married, people are still getting damaged. And Jesus is teaching that even indulging sexual desire non-physically, merely in fantasy, is destructive to us and others. There's a myth out there about private sin. That's part of the the false attraction of, you know, we're in an epidemic of pornography right now. People rationalize that it's private. It ain't. Right? If we're dallying in that, it's going to come out everywhere. All of our relationships. How we, how we interact with people, because it trains us how to see people, right? how to use people. The problem with 
practice of sexually objectifying others hinders our ability to see their humanity and certainly to love them as Christ. Therefore, Jesus is teaching us that that saying no to sexual desire whenever it arises outside of the the context of marriage is one of our most basic Christian disciplines to practice. But then Jesus introduces some hyperbole, saying in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And the same thing with the hand, right? Now, obviously, Jesus is not being literal here. Not just because we don't want him to be being literal. (laughs) But because, as Willard points out, one could be without their eyes and hands and yet still have a heart completely filled with lust. So it does not follow that Jesus is being literal here because it wouldn't do anything, really. Not to the heart that Jesus is addressing. Instead, Jesus is using hyperbole to suggest that the solution of lust is to work on ourselves. To look at ourselves and our hearts as the problem. To make a clear and honest accounting of lust's roots in our hearts. And this is notably in contrast to, say, the approach of Islam, right? In Islam, there are external solutions prescribed for lust, like forcing women to wear hijabs and burqas and jilbabs, and I don't know how to say all this stuff, right? But, but forcing women to do that, right? As if that, as if the problem's not in the person's heart. Like, whatever, dude, right? If you look at the porn statistics for Iran, they are high. <laughs> Hijabs ain't doing it, right? Osama bin Laden had a whole trove of it, right, for his jihad. Well, he was taking breaks from his jihad. All right, I'm off track. Jesus, Jesus is teaching it is mistaken for one to hold others responsible. To hold it is. Excuse me. It is mistaken for one to hold others responsible for their lust. Right? Instead, the path to victory when t- temptation strikes comes through a person admitting that they may be powerless over these desires. They are. Right? But that Jesus is not powerless over them. And he can remove them from the practice of surrender or confession to another if we're willing to humble ourselves to And yet, just as someone can become an angry person, one can also become so habituated to indulging lust that it becomes an addiction. But on that point, what Jesus is saying here about lust actually applies to most addictive behaviors. So maybe you feel like sexual lust isn't a major problem for you. Sometimes when I preach on lust, I get comments from from a few folks, from a few older folks in the congregation. like, And my response would be, <laughs> but maybe you've decided it's not a problem for you. Great, congrats. Check back in because this is also about most all addictions, right? And on some level, we are all addicts. Anybody ever told you that? 
We're all addicts. In many addictive behaviors like sex or drug addiction that are more taboo, or alcoholism or food addiction that's less taboo, or romance or gambling or shopping or control that are hardly taboo in our culture at all, on some level, all of these addictive behaviors are functioning the same in us, whatever our drug of choice may be. All such addictions are rooted in an obsession of the mind that we are ultimately powerless over, that only Jesus is more powerful than. And that obsession of the mind places unreasonable expectations on whatever the object of our addiction is, right? The substance or the behavior, right? It puts unreasonable expectations on it that that substance or behavior can never actually fulfill. You've heard of the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, so on. Well, a friend of mine says addictive behaviors are our attempts to acquire the fruits of the Spirit without submitting to the Spirit of God. I thought, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Addictive behaviors are our attempts to acquire the fruits of the Spirit, right? Everybody wants love. Everybody wants joy. Everybody wants peace. Addictive behaviors are our attempts to acquire that, though, without submitting to the Spirit of God and His way of receiving. People acquire addictions from trying to love and care for themselves when they haven't been adequately loved themselves. And I say that with the utmost compassion. Right? And again, as, a, as an addict, we're all addicts. So I'm not saying that in a, a pointing the finger kind of way. But to to return to the lust subject in particular, it may surprise you that the roots of the pornography epidemic that we're living through right now actually has very little to do with sex. Rather, it stems from the widespread failure of people in our society to, to learn or be taught how to meet their needs for true relational intimacy through appropriate connections with other human beings. As our culture becomes more and more fragmented and lonely and isolated, you inject the internet into that, and it's a perfect storm. And I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying it makes sense why we're in that epidemic. And so so when a person's there, and they don't really, it's kind of an intimacy disorder, right? We don't really know how to have vulnerable relationships with other people. Instead, they're going, to go, they're going to go beyond God's ways, beyond his boundaries, to pursue the feeling of connection, even though it's an illusion. And so one ingredient for God to help us put to death addictions of any sort is often learning to cultivate vulnerable relational connections with other people which is hard work, hard thing to do, hard thing to learn, hard, hard to find people willing to do that with us, right? Cultivating vulnerable relational connections with other people is an antidote to addictive behavior, along with taking on practices of self-care that are healthy to, to become more aware of the feelings and needs and um, that our, con- <coughs> excuse me, needs that our behaviors um, that we have at any given time. 
cultivating practices, let me say that right, cultivating practices of self-care that get us in touch with what our feelings and needs are. A lot of people walking around don't even know what they're feeling. Don't even know what their needs are. So of course they're going to try to meet them in inappropriate ways. Okay. The last section I've got time to get to is Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. You're thinking, ain't this enough? Come on, John. (laughs) Sorry. I'm skipping the last paragraph. So what are we to make of what Jesus says here? Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, the reason Jesus only addresses a husband divorcing a wife is explained by understanding the historical context of Jesus' day, right? It would be an understatement to say that it would have been uncommon for a woman to seek divorce in Jesus' day. It just didn't happen because it was socially and economically so disastrous for a woman to be divorced. However, it was sadly common for men to divorce their wives for pretty much any little reason or whim they felt like. And this is because that passage from Deuteronomy 24 printed in the bulletin, right? The scribes were all about following the law to the letter. But Jesus teaches that even though they were kind of indiscriminately going in the divorce direction, he's trying to teach them this is an inhuman way for somebody to treat their wife. Even if they interpret God's law as like making something technically permissible, Jesus is saying there's a human being here. Saying you're ignoring the enormous emotional impact divorce has on somebody in any era, in any day. But in that particular day, in that first century Jewish context, you're ignoring the social consequences it has on a woman. Right? In those days, a woman would be left to either prostitute herself, or if she found somebody who would remarry her, she would be treated in that relationship like damaged goods. Basically, it would not be an equitable arrangement. So with verse 32, Jesus is not turning divorce or remarriage into some scarlet letter, Rather, he's acknowledging that in the first century Jewish society, that's what it was. That's how it functioned in the society. He's saying, in society, it's a scarlet letter. So if you just indiscriminately do it, you're not not appreciating the consequence it's going to have. So to divorce a woman in that society, Jesus is saying, you better have a darn good reason. So the good news here is that Jesus is coming to the defense of the vulnerable by declaring how devastating, by pointing to the reality of how devastating divorce is. And we can only assume that he grieves with those who have to go through it. But the church mustn't misunderstand Jesus to mean that divorce is an unforgivable sin. And I will just say as a clergy on behalf of the universal church, you know, I am sorry for the way the church has perpetrated that on people. Terrible scripture interpretation to treat divorce as an unforgivable sin. The fact is that while divorce does incredible damage, sometimes divorce is the right thing to do. 
particularly in response to a spouse with a hardened heart who's producing harm such as physical or emotional abuse, and if, if separation doesn't remedy it, staying with them would actually dishonor them, right? Just be a, an emotional or physical pinata for somebody? You think that's what Jesus wants us to do? Absolutely not. And yet in all cases of divorce, one must not fail. One would be wise not to fail to, to examine any responsibility they have for how things ended. Even if it pales in comparison to the culpability of the other person, the former spouse, like in the case of an abuse, still, is there 1% of what I did to even get in that situation in the first place of marrying somebody with that kind of character? Or, or I don't want to be too specific. Come before Jesus and say, is there anything that I need to take responsibility for here so that I don't repeat it in all my relationships thereafter, whether romantic or with family or whatever? Failure to confront the failures and traumas of our past means we're only signing up to re-perpetrate over and over. But the best news in all these commands on anger and lust and and marriage and in the teaching on trustworthiness I wasn't able to get to, the, the best news is Jesus isn't trying to announce here the ways he wants to do an extreme makeover of our hearts if we'll allow him to. He wants to help us in ways we are truly incapable of helping ourselves. And that transformation can't take place overnight. For for us to make progress in it, though, we must realize that our real obstacles are inside. And here, between these ears, to all these issues. So the path forward is to to cultivate an inner curiosity, an awareness about the roots of our sin. But that that requires we make the time and space to do that. And frankly, people just rarely do. It's hard to make that space. It's not easy work. It's easier just to keep self-medicating and avoiding it. We aren't going to live into the abundant life Jesus wants for us that way. So perhaps this Lenten season is an opportunity to take a step forward, a step step toward that. But finally, we must also recognize our need for one another in that journey. While each of us are responsible for how we respond to these commandments as individuals, we must remember Jesus is preaching this sermon to a group of people. In other words, Jesus is presuming communal fellowship in everything he's teaching. And it's the fellowship of believers where the Lord intends for us to to look for support, right, for encouragement and reminders of the truth and of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus that's always ours. We need other people to remind us of those things. And it's all these elements, our willingness to follow Jesus on this journey, the fruit of an outer morality becoming integrated with a transformed inner life, a humility and self-awareness about how far we still, each of us, have to go in participating in authentic, vulnerable community. All of that is what will allow Jesus to bless us in such a way that we become salt and light, truly, to others in this world.